after two and a half years of uh, working as a weekend youth pastor for a church that was about 60 miles north of the college that I attended, uh, the church hired us to be almost full-time. And we moved to the area, and I commuted two days a week to college for my last few classes there. And that's when a man whose name I never knew began to make a difference in my life. It was a small difference, but it was a positive one. You see, each morning as I drove from my home to my office at the church building, this older man stood in his yard and he waved at cars that were passing by. And I don't mean just a casual wave. This was a full-armed, enthusiastic wave. He always had a huge smile on his face. You know, if it was a small car, he'd bend down and he'd wave. It was a, a, quite a sight to see and to watch people. I mean, some people would honk their horn and wave back. You'd see little children's arms out the window waving. And you'd see people coming the other way. And they'd see him and they'd kind of give a nervous, confused, you know, wave. But um, it was a really interesting thing. I wish that I had stopped to ask his story. You see, I had a theory that he was retired and he was standing out there not being friendly, but being mean. I thought he might have had that huge smile on his face because he was thinking, you poor slobs have to go to work today, but I never have to go to work again. Again, I never knew his name, but he made a difference in my life. Every day as I drove past him, he made me smile. I can think of some other nameless difference makers in my life. There's this speaker whose name I can't remember, but who I've been quoting for about 30 years now. There's people who sent an anonymous financial gift to us uh, that absolutely rescued us several times when our daughter Kayla was ill. There's the man that my mom was engaged to before my dad who made a difference in my life by not marrying my mom so that she could meet and marry my dad. And there's the person whose name I don't know that invented Diet Coke. <laughs> These are all nameless difference makers in my life. Now, have you ever had someone who is nameless be a difference maker in your life? I mean, someone who blessed you anonymously in some way, or they said some kind words to you, and they helped you in some way. You see, sometimes difference makers are well-known. Sometimes they're famous. I mean, we know their names. We can uh, thank them. We can praise them by name. Other times, people make a huge positive difference, and no one even seems to notice the difference they've made. Or if they do notice, they just didn't catch the person's name. And in this series, we're going to look at five different situations from the Bible, and we're going to look at some nameless difference makers, difference makers that we read about in the pages of the Bible, uh, but for whatever reason, these people didn't rate having their names recorded for history. Last weekend, we 
talked about Matthias, whose uh, name was only mentioned two times in the Bible. And those that we'll look at in this series didn't have their names mentioned at all, but they were difference makers. So why are we bringing this message series? Well, all year long, we have been trying to help you to allow God to use you in some way to be the difference in the life of those around you. And sometimes that's done in big ways that get noticed. And other times it happens in ways that are behind the scenes, but still make a big difference. And I want to encourage you that even though your name may never be recorded in the history books, you can quietly be the difference in big ways. And that's what we see happen in the passage that I want to share with you today. It's in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. And in that passage, there are several nameless difference makers who helped a man receive a miracle. They helped a man receive a miracle. Don't push what I just said out of your brain too quickly. Have you realized God could use you to help someone else experience a miracle? Sometimes we think that miracles only happened way back then in Bible times, or they only happened when Jesus was around. But if you're thinking that, you're forgetting two important truths. The first one's this, Jesus is still around. Jesus promised before his earthly body went back to heaven that he would always be with us, even until the end of time. And so Jesus is still around. The second truth that uh, sometimes we might forget is the Bible is clear. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what that tells me is miracles can still happen. Like me, you probably know someone that you believe was miraculously healed of a disease. It doesn't happen often enough, in my opinion, and it doesn't, it's sometimes rare, but you might know someone who you believe with all your heart was miraculously healed of a disease. Miracles can still happen. And the Cubs and the Indians are playing in the World Series. <laughs> miracles can still happen. So if miracles can still happen, I can help facilitate miracles. And if we follow God fully, if we are available for him to use, he just might do a miracle through each of us, just like he did through some nameless difference makers in this passage of scripture. The miracle we'll read about in Luke chapter 5 happened in the first year of Jesus' earthly ministry. And ever since he preached what we now call the Sermon on the Mount, he's been out preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons. And it seems that every time people know that he's in the area, they surround him. They literally mob him. And what's more is we know that every time Jesus heals someone, some power and energy goes out of him. He loses some power and some energy and some strength. We know that because one day he's just walking through a crowd of people and a, a woman who needed to be healed just touched his garment and he felt the power drain out of him. And so it sapped some of Jesus' energy when he was doing his ministry. It was hard for him to get even a moment's rest, and it was even hard for him to find time to be alone and to pray. And so in this account, 
Jesus comes back to Capernaum, and as we will see, he is again surrounded by a huge crowd. In fact, he's teaching inside a home, and this home is packed with people. Let's begin by looking at just verse 17 of Luke chapter 5. Here's what it says. One day when Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every town in the Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal the sick. So he's in this house in Capernaum, and he's teaching. And a lot of religious leaders are there to listen to him speak, and they may already be looking for ways to get people to stop listening to him, or they may be hoping that Jesus is impressed by the fact that they're there, that Jesus notices how important they are. But either way, they're there, and Jesus is teaching. And it's important to notice that Jesus is teaching because the passage says the power was present for Jesus to heal people. The power was present for Jesus to heal people, but apparently Jesus wasn't healing people. Instead, he was teaching. The power was there for a miracle, but apparently no miracles were taking place. Why? Well, I've got to think the reason was that the people right there in front of Jesus weren't ready for a miracle. I mean, maybe they thought they had it all together. Maybe they really believed that they didn't need a miracle. Maybe they didn't imagine that they could ever be a part of a miracle. It sounds incredible, doesn't it? Jesus is there with the power to do miracles, and no one seems to even think to ask him to do anything miraculous. I mean, it sounds incredible. But I think it happens every day. I think it happens all the time today. I mean, I think Jesus is willing to do powerful, life-changing miracles for and through many people who are following him today. I mean, he's ready to help you overcome that addiction that's holding you back. Or he's ready to help you help your neighbor, neighbor become a follower of Jesus. Or he's ready to help you serve him in some big way that scares you to death and you just don't think that you can do it. I think he is ready and the power is present for him to do miracles miracles, but most people today aren't thinking about miracles. They're too busy thinking about normal life, or they're too busy trying really hard to figure out how to fix the problems in their life on their own, with their own strength, with their own power, and they're so busy focusing on their own life and their own priorities that they're missing miracles that Jesus wants to do in their life. Pretty sad, isn't it? But that's about to change in our story because of some nameless difference makers. Jesus is going to get to use that power that he has to heal because some people cared enough to let God use them to facilitate a miracle. And so if you want God to use you to facilitate a miracle... Walk with me through this story, and I'll point out some keys that are necessary. If God is going to use you to do miraculous things, first, to facilitate a miracle, don't let barriers stop you. Don't let barriers 
stop you. Look again at our story, and we'll meet some of our nameless difference makers. Let's start at the end of verse 17. It says, the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a bed, and they tried to carry him into the house and put him in front of Jesus. Because of the crowd, however, they could find no way to take him in. So they carried him up on the roof, they made an opening in the tiles, and they let him down on his bed into the middle of the group in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw how much faith they had, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven, my friend. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees began to say to themselves, who is this man who speaks such blasphemy? God is the only one who can forgive sins. So while Jesus is in this house teaching, not healing, there is a man outside who's paralyzed and he needs to be healed. And four of his friends are trying to get him to Jesus. And as you read the story, you can sense the desperation in their actions. You can sense the urgency in their actions. I mean, they have got to get in to see Jesus. They, they don't want to wait. They won't be put off because if they wait, they might miss him again. They might miss him again. I'm sensing from their urgency that this paralyzed man has tried to get to Jesus before. Maybe he had just missed Jesus days before when Jesus had gotten into a boat and crossed over to the other side of this Sea of Galilee. But now Jesus has come back, and they're desperate, and they need a miracle, and they decide they just won't let barriers stop them. And they face several barriers. So let's talk about the barriers they faced. The first barrier was just a simple one. It was transportation. I mean, this man was paralyzed, so he could not get himself to Jesus. And so they overcame the barrier of transportation by just going to his house, and his four friends each picked up a corner of his bed, and they carried him on his bed to where Jesus would be, where they'd been told Jesus was. And they just have to see Jesus. They can't risk Jesus getting away again before their friend has a chance to be touched by Jesus and healed by Jesus. And they have finally caught up with Jesus, and they run into another barrier. This time, they can't get through because of the crowd. The crowd is the barrier this time. There's no room in the house. They can't even get close to the door. There are even people crowded around the windows, so they can't even try to get Jesus' attention. But they aren't giving up. So they sit down together, and they begin to talk about what to do. There's no room in the house. People are crowding the door. They're blocking the windows. How are we going to get in, they wonder. And then one of them looks over at the house and he says, well, there's nobody up on the roof. And everybody looks at him in surprise because they all know what he's thinking. He's thinking, I wonder if we could dig a hole in the roof and then we could use some ropes and lower him down in front of Jesus. Yes, that's right. These guys wanted a miracle so bad they decided even a physical barrier wouldn't stop them. They decided not to let the roof get in the way of a miracle. Now, you have to realize this is a bold move on their part. Not only were they about to destroy the roof of somebody else's house, 
Not only were they about to disrupt a teaching session taught by Jesus himself, but they are about to barge into a meeting with some very important people present, the religious leaders who had come from every town in Galilee and Judea to listen to Jesus. But you know that the paralyzed man's friends just don't care. They don't care if they ruin the roof. They don't care if they upset the meeting, and they don't care who's in the house with Jesus. All they care about is they have this friend who needs healing, and Jesus can heal him. And so nothing else matters, so they get up on the roof. Now, the houses in Capernaum at that time, in Jesus' day, weren't built like ours. Scholars tell us that the homes from that time period had a unique flat roof made of wooden beams that rested on the walls, and then these beams were placed about three or four feet apart, and they were covered with thick branches and brush and uh, reeds and then mud and grass and clay, and all of that would be four to six inches thick. And then the whole roof was often topped off with clay tiles to channel away the rain. And so while it would still be difficult, it would be far easier than trying to dig through or cut through this roof above our head. And uh, imagine being inside the house that day. I mean, you were so thrilled that you had scored a seat inside the house for Jesus to teach. And then all of a sudden, you hear this commotion on the roof as these four men tug at the branches and plaster and the other debris to make this uh, big hole in the roof. They need a hole big enough for their friend to be lowered down through. And you can see the crowd as the debris begins to rain down on them. You can see them struggling to get out of the way. And as they back away from the dust, um, a place on the floor in front of Jesus opens up just big enough for a man on a pallet. And there's Jesus. I think he's probably standing there. And he's watching quietly until this man is lowered to the floor in front of him. And he looks up and he sees the anxious faces of four nameless difference makers peering down through the hole in the ceiling, and he looks down, and he sees this difference maker, this man who can't walk in front of him. And then Jesus says something really strange, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, and that's when one more barrier shows up. The last barrier is the critics. The critics. And this isn't a barrier that has ever gone away. They're still around today. But the religious leaders begin to criticize what Jesus says, and Jesus has to deal with the critics. He has to deal with this barrier. He does. He isn't going to let the critics stand in the way of the miracle. So each of us should ask ourselves a simple question. Here's the question. What am I letting stop me? What am I letting stop me? What barrier are you letting get in the way of the miracles God wants to do in your life and the miracles that he wants to facilitate through you? I mean, maybe the crowd is in your way. You're letting what most people think or most people feel or what most people believe get in the way of what Jesus wants to do in your life or through your life. Or maybe it's critics in your life that have convinced you that what God wants you to do is just impossible, that you just can't do what God's asked you to do. Or maybe 
maybe it's something that seems bigger and more imposing than that roof seemed to them that day. I mean, that person that you want to bring to Jesus for spiritual healing scoffs at the idea that Jesus can do anything good in their life. They're just not open to what you're trying to say to them. Or those big ugly walls in your marriage seem to be far thicker than that roof was that day. Or your finances seem to be in the way of you giving like God wants you to give. You see, if you're going to participate in a miracle, don't let barriers stop you. Don't let barriers stop you. You have to decide with Jesus' help to push through the barriers so that you can access Jesus' power. There's a second key to facilitating a miracle, and that is believe a miracle is possible. Pretty simple, isn't it? Just believe a miracle is possible. Look back at our story. I'll start with verse 20. When Jesus saw how much faith they had, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven, my friend. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees began to say to themselves, who is this man who speaks such blasphemy? God is the only one who can forgive sins. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, why do you think such things? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say, get up and walk? I will prove to you then that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And at once the man got up in front of them all, took the bed that he had been lying on, and went home praising God. The passage tells us Jesus noticed a couple of things here. First, Jesus noticed their faith. Jesus noticed their faith. Verse 20 says, when Jesus noticed how much faith they had, when he saw their faith, and the they in the passage are the four faces looking down at him from the roof and the man lying on the mat. It's our uh, nameless difference makers' faces. He sees their faith. And these men really did believe that if they could just get their friend to Jesus, they could change his life forever. And so they're willing to do whatever it takes, uh, whatever they needed to do to bring their friend to Jesus. And uh, they really believed that Jesus could do that miracle. And because of that, Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith. You know, a question we ought to ask ourselves is this. Can people see my faith? Can people see my faith? I mean, would people around you notice that you believe Jesus could do miracles? Would people around you notice your faith in Jesus? I guess maybe an even more important question that's not in your notes. Has Jesus seen your faith? Jesus saw their faith. Has, has Jesus seen your faith? I mean, do you have a friend or a relative or a coworker who is crippled inside? And uh, it could be that 
they're using chemicals to try to chase away their herd, or maybe they're consumed with bitterness, or they're an outcast or a loner who doesn't feel accepted, and Jesus has the power to heal them, to change their lives. And when you care enough uh, for them, and you want Jesus to use you to facilitate a miracle for you, and you don't let barriers stop you, and you really believe that Jesus can do that healing, when, when all that happens, Jesus sees that. Jesus notices your faith. But the passage tells us Jesus noticed something else. Jesus noticed the real need. The real need. When the man's lowered in front of Jesus and Jesus looks up and sees their faith, he turns to the man and he says, your sins are forgiven you, my friend. I'm imagining the man on the mat kind of going... That's not why I'm here. And his friends up on the roof going, what? That's nice, now heal him, right? But Jesus sees the real need. And when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, that's when the critics begin to shake their head. The passage doesn't really say they said anything. They begin to think, who does this guy think he is? I mean, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus knows what they're thinking, just like he knows what you're thinking. Now and all the time, you're not fooling him. He knows what you're thinking. And Jesus says, why are you thinking such critical thoughts? And then Jesus begins to use logic and reason with them. He says, okay, Let's think about this. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? What do you think? How would you have answered Jesus' question? I think it's much easier to say, your sins are forgiven because no one would ever know whether what you said was true or not, at least not until heaven. There would be no way to prove that what you said was true. So Jesus says, you know, I want to prove that I have the authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he turns to the man and he says, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man did it. The man jumps up, bends over, he rolls up his bed, and apparently this stunned crowd that couldn't make room for them to carry him in makes room for the man to walk out praising God walk out on his own power and everyone was amazed verse 26 would tell us and everybody is maybe even a little bit fearful and do you know why it happened because five people whose names we don't know the four friends and the paralyzed man didn't let barriers get in the way and they really believed that miracles were possible You see, they had faith, and because of their faith, Jesus did two miracles that day. Two miracles. And we often miss the real miracle, so write this down. The real miracle was not that this man was no longer lame. The real miracle was that this man was no longer lost. The real miracle wasn't that he was no longer lame, it's that he wasn't lost anymore. The real miracle isn't that he walked out of there on his own two feet. The real miracle is that he walked into heaven because Jesus 
had forgiven his sins. So ask yourself an important question. Am I focused on lesser miracles? I mean, often we're praying for God to do amazing things. We're praying for God to work in our life. I mean, we are praying for God to heal someone. Maybe to heal them of an addiction. Maybe to heal them of an illness. Maybe to heal them of cancer. Maybe we're praying for God to help someone get a great job or to provide for them financially. And can Jesus do those things? Yes. But sometimes those are lesser miracles. Those are lesser miracles. Let's not stop praying for those things, but let's pray for the most important miracle, for people to turn to Jesus and have their sins forgiven, to find forgiveness and hope and salvation through him. See, I fear Christian parents are praying for their kids to do well in school and praying for their kids to be accepted and praying for their kids to make good earthly choices and to become responsible citizens, but they aren't praying for their kids to find the greatest miracle of all. Forgiveness through Jesus. Salvation through Jesus. And these people got to participate in a miracle because they didn't let barriers stop them and they believed that a miracle was truly possible. But there's one more key to letting God facilitate a miracle, but it's hidden really well in the passage. You might not see it at all until I point it out and then you might think I'm really stretching things, but... Lastly, to facilitate a miracle, participate by paying the cost. Participate by paying the cost. There's another difference maker in this story. And not only is he or she nameless, they aren't even referred to in the passage. A difference maker that is often overlooked is the person who paid for the roof. It's the person who paid for the roof. Did you ever think about that? Who paid for the roof in the first place? I mean, I expect it was probably the homeowner. I mean, he or she had built this house for their family and they'd worked hard on the roof and they'd paid for the tiles and for the beams to have a roof. And because he or she paid for the roof the first time, Jesus came to his house. That in and of itself is an amazing privilege. Jesus came to his house. And then all these other people started showing up and they crowded into his house to listen to Jesus teach there in his house. And then some guys cut a hole in the roof and they lowered down this paralyzed man and, and then Jesus heals the man. And everyone's excited. The man leaves praising God, walks out of the room, and everyone else is amazed and they're excited, and they leave too so that they can tell everyone else about it in town. And the homeowner is standing there in his house with a huge hole in the roof. Do you think he was upset? I don't. I don't think he was upset at all. I wouldn't have been. I would have been honored. I would have been fulfilled, I would have spent the rest of my life praising God that Jesus did a miracle at my house. And the miracle couldn't have happened if the man hadn't have built his house in the first place and if he hadn't have had a roof for them to tear a hole in. The miracle couldn't have happened. Not only do I think that he was glad to pay for the roof the first time, I think he gladly paid for the roof to be repaired because 
he was thankful to be a difference maker in the life of a man who needed to be healed. I got to tell you, sometimes people just don't get it. They just don't get it. But if you have become a Christian here at Impact, if your life has been changed at all here at Impact, I want to tell you it's all because other people a long time ago paid for the roof. They paid for the roof so that miracles could happen in your life. For people at, here at our Moon Campus, it's a physical roof. For people at our Beaver Valley Campus, it's uh, equipment that uh, gets set up every week, and it's uh, salaries, and it's rent that's being paid for a theater and so much more. And sometimes people think that giving to the general fund of the church just isn't very exciting, that it just really doesn't do much. I want you to know that that is so far from the truth it isn't even funny. That's so far from the truth. I mean, when you give to the general fund, you participate in miracles that God is doing here at Impact. Let me list some miracles you can participate at Impact in by giving. First, changing the population of heaven and hell. Absolutely changing the population of heaven and hell. When you give to impact, you are helping people who are far from God find forgiveness, find salvation. You are helping Jesus accomplish his goal of seeking and saving those that are lost, and you are emptying out hell and filling up heaven. That's a miracle. When you give to impact, you're changing lives for the better through programs like our revolution, our Celebrate Recovery ministry, and our marriage ministry, and our counseling ministries. People are being helped to overcome their hurts and their habits and their hang-ups, and their lives are changing for the better. You are helping by changing families. God is using impact to help families stay together and to help parents spiritually lead their children and their students, and marriages and relationships are being healed. And you're also, when you give to impact, changing our community. Already people in our community feel the love of Jesus through the ways uh, all of our campuses reach out and serve others. And that's going to get even bigger as we give our communities a place where they can enjoy life with other people during the week and meet Jesus on the weekend. And then lastly, you can participate in changing the world. And that happens through our mission outreach but it also happens through everything else that I've just listed. Let me explain it. You see, we're ministering to people one heart and one life at a time. We minister to one heart and one life, and when we are able to let God love us and love someone else through us, God changes a heart. And when God changes a heart, eventually God changes a home. And when God changes a home, eventually the neighborhood changes. And when the neighborhood changes, eventually the community changes. And when the community changes, eventually our metropolitan area changes. And when our metropolitan area changes, eventually our state changes. And when our state changes, eventually our nation changes. And when our nation changes, the world changes. So what we do here really does change the world. It changes the world. And if you want to facilitate the miracle of changing the world, give to impact. Pay for the roof. 
provide a place where Jesus can use his power to do miracles. So ask yourself a question that you might not like very much, but here it is. Am I participating just enough to bug me or enough to bless me? Am I participating enough to bug me or enough to bless me? And, and I'm talking about your giving here. Are you giving just enough to bug you? You know, just enough that every time we mention giving in church, you get irritated about that. And if you're feeling irritated right now, that's probably the Holy Spirit talking to you about this. Are you giving just enough to make you feel guilty? Just enough that you feel entitled, that you ought to get your way, that your opinion ought to matter? Or are you giving enough to bless you? Enough to really bless you? Enough that you tear up when you see a baptism because you know you were part of that. That you were part of that miracle and that changed life. Are you doing enough to bless you by doing enough to be excited when we start a new campus or when we buy an ice arena because you know you are part of the miracle God is going to do there. You see, if you want to be a difference maker, you have to participate by paying the cost. So let me close with two questions. Here's the first question I want you to really think about for a minute. Who are the difference makers in your life? Who are the difference makers in your life? I mean, all of us are here because of one or more difference makers. Somebody brought us to Jesus. Somebody took care of us so that we could receive the healing emotionally and spiritually from Jesus. And all of us are here because someone else paid for the roof. So who are the difference makers in your life? And have you thanked them lately? Second question as we close. Are you a difference maker? Are you just marking time? Are you a difference maker? Who is in your line of sight that needs Jesus? Are you inviting people? Are you bringing people to Jesus? Are you not letting the barriers stop you, but finding a way to push through those barriers to help your friends and your family members come to Jesus? Does your giving show that you care enough about people to facilitate a miracle? I mean, if you evaluate your current budget, would it indicate that you're passionate about seeing Jesus use his power to do miracles, or would it indicate that you're passionate about your own needs and your own desires. You see, you can be a difference maker. God can use you to make a difference, to facilitate a miracle in someone else's life. But to facilitate a miracle, don't let barriers stop you. And believe, really believe that miracles are possible. And participate. Participate by paying the cost. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thanks so much for the fact that you're always patient with us, that you're always loving towards us. Thank you, Father, that you loved us enough to bring into our life some difference makers, some people who saw our need and wouldn't let anything stop them from helping us, people who really believed that you could do life-changing miracles if they could just get us close to you. People who were willing to pay the price so that we 
could find your miracles. And now, Father, use us as difference makers in other people's lives. Father, we stand on the shoulders of people who for many years, for 46 years, made this place a place of grace, a place where people could find you. Father, help us be for people 46 years from now, the people who believe in miracles and facilitate miracles and make them possible. And Father, we will give you the glory. We will give Jesus the credit in his name. Amen.